Good morning. Would you please pray with me? Almighty God, your word comforts and challenges us. It inspires and disciplines us. Help us now to put aside all that hardens our hearts so that we may be readied for your great and liberating work. Amen. After writing The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, L. Frank Baum wrote another children's adventure, Dot and Tot of Maryland. In it, two small children, Dot and Tot, happen to find a boat on the shore. They climb into it and by themselves are carried by currents to a magical kingdom called Maryland. There are seven valleys in Maryland, each one special in its own right and delightful to explore. One valley consists of clowns. The second valley is made completely of candy. The third valley is where babies grow out of blossoms before storks deliver them to their parents. The fourth valley is where dolls live, and the fifth is full of kittens. The sixth valley is where wind-up toy animals are made. And the seventh, final valley is the strangest of them all. When Dot and Tot arrive there, Dot isn't sure what to make of it until she learns that it is the valley of lost things. Its landscape is strewn with miscellaneous objects, everything that has ever been lost, buttons, hats, socks, toys, rings, coats, and dolls. Tot understands why he and Dot are allowed to venture into this valley, because they too are lost. What becomes of the things we lose and never recover? It's a question that throughout the centuries has captivated our imaginations. Different versions of the valley of lost things appear in literature, and as we know, in some of the world's religious traditions. In their different ways, the world's religions address different aspects of loss. What becomes of the things and people we lose? How are we to face loss? What can we do to process, if not prevent, loss? Religious traditions provide existential perspectives and practical advice on the experience of loss. I got a taste of this when, during graduate school, soon after Michael and I got engaged, I lost my engagement ring. Though I searched and searched, I couldn't find the ring that Michael had bought with the hourly wages he had earned over the past year, mostly checking out books and photocopying articles for a professor. Sharing the distress I felt with my friends at the Divinity School, I immediately received a sampling of religious responses. My Catholic friend said that she would pray to St. Anthony, the patron saint of lost things. Another friend studying Islam recited a dua, a Muslim prayer commonly spoken when people lose things. My friend studying Buddhism offered a pithy Buddhist teaching about non-attachment. The parable we heard this morning, that of the prodigal son, 
is the third in a series of parables that Jesus told about lost things. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. In the first two parables, Jesus spoke about specific concrete things, but we know that he had more in mind than sheep and a coin. Given Jesus' awareness of the Pharisees and scribes grumbling with discontent over the fact that he was spending time and even eating with tax collectors and other sinners, Jesus told these three parables about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, so that we might open up the circle of people whom we are to value, for whom we are to care. Instead of addressing head-on the problem of self-righteous thinking, Jesus addressed the situation in different terms, in terms of losing and finding. All of us have experienced some measure of loss in our lives. Our experiences of loss can range from the ordinary to the existential, from losing a ring to losing a loved one, from being lost in thought to being lost in a wilderness, from losing a driver's license to losing one's good name, from losing property to losing an opportunity. In her memoir entitled Lost and Found, author Katherine Schultz writes about what it was like to lose her father. When her beloved father died, she found herself having to make sense for the first time of the strange saying, I lost my father. Like many of us, she had always assumed that when the verb to lose was referring to the dead, it was being used figuratively. But upon looking it up, she found that this turns out not to be true. The verb to lose, she writes, has its taproot sunk in sorrow. It is related to the lorn in forlorn. It comes from the Old English word meaning to perish, which comes from an even older word meaning to separate or cut apart. The modern sense of misplacing an object only appeared later in the 13th century. A hundred years after that, to lose acquired the meaning of failing to win. In the 16th century, we began to lose our minds. In the 17th century, our hearts. Not only the original meaning of loss, but all of its additional layers resonated with her experience of grief. If we want to understand the third parable that Jesus told, that of the lost son, this multi-layered meaning of the verb to lose can help us to grasp the fullness of loss in the story. More than the preceding two parables that Jesus told, in which loss has more to do with misplaced things, the parable of the lost son invokes layers and layers of loss. Not only did the younger son in the parable lose the land that he inherited from his father by choosing to sell it, he also lost the money he got from the sale, by squandering it. As the story tells us, he lost his way by dissolute living. 
The father in the parable lost his younger son when that son gathered all he had and left for a distant land with no plan to return. When a famine struck that foreign land, the younger son had already lost all his resources. To survive the famine, he worked for Gentiles as a swineherd, thereby losing any shred of dignity he might have had as a Jew. Seeing what he had become, how low he had sunk, he lost any sense of the future or the adventure he had originally desired. Deciding to return home for the sake of survival, he was willing to lose his status as a son. He was prepared to say to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. In every sense of the word, this younger son had become so completely lost that his father, upon seeing him, couldn't believe his eyes. It was as though someone whom he had mourned dead was made alive. Twice, he rejoices, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Of all the parables that Jesus tells, we can relate perhaps most to this one. It is so very human. Full of pathos, the story covers a whole portfolio of emotions, positive and negative. Joy and amazement, all the way to defiance, despair, shame, jealousy, and anger. Among the slew of negative emotions is one that pervades the story, regret. The story is full of regret. We can feel the son's regret for the choices he made. We can imagine his thoughts, if only I hadn't been so foolish, if only I hadn't been so selfish, if only I had valued my relationships, if only I hadn't wasted my father's love, my inheritance, my opportunities, my life. Whether it is felt over something we did or failed to do, regret often follows loss. The loss of something that could have been otherwise. In his recently published book, The Power of Regret, author Daniel Pink delves into the research of behavioral psychologists as well as conducts his own world regret survey to understand the pervasiveness and power of regret in our lives. He argues that regret, while it feels badly in the moment, can improve our lives later on. While it makes us feel worse today, it can help us to do better tomorrow. This is why Daniel Pink wants to challenge the idea, the credo, that one should have no regrets. Leave no room for regrets. Waste no time on regret. I don't believe in regret. No regrets. These are common, very American in some ways, refrains we've heard embedded in songs and seen tattooed on skin. But the, the truth is 
that regret is not a waste of time. Regret, Daniel Pink writes, is not dangerous or abnormal, a deviation from the steady path to happiness. It is healthy and universal, an integral part of being human. Regret is also valuable. It clarifies, it instructs, done right. It doesn't need to drag us down. It can actually lift us up. That regret is valuable and necessary is what the church has always known and put into practice. Every time we gather for worship, we say a prayer of confession because we believe in the power of regret, which the church calls repentance. Week after week, we practice repentance because we want to be formed by it. Our prayer of confession is always followed by an assurance of forgiveness by which we also want to be formed. Regret channeled into repentance, followed by forgiveness, is what the parable of the lost son is all about. When the prodigal says to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father rejoices. You can imagine, can't you, the joy that the father felt in this moment? So much joy that without reserve, he throws a big party. Let's celebrate, he says. Well, not everyone felt such joy. We know this from the story. Neither the older brother in the story felt joy, nor the Pharisees and scribes listening to the story felt joy. They were not in the mood to welcome and throw a party for people who were sinners. And that's because... They were thinking about the situation in terms of righteousness. Framing things in terms of who deserves what is not exactly a formula that brings about joy. So in telling this parable, Jesus changed the frame entirely. The father in the parable doesn't scold the older son for his way of thinking, and he doesn't defend the younger son's actions. Instead, he reframes the matter entirely. Instead of sticking to the frame of righteousness and just deserts, of repenting and being forgiven, Jesus speaks in terms of losing and finding. He knows that just as everyone has some understanding of what it feels like to lose something of value, everyone also knows what it feels like to find something or someone that was treasured, lost, and sought. Who doesn't know the joy that is felt when you find something that you thought was permanently lost? I remember the joy I felt when my engagement ring, which had gotten wedged between the frame of my futon and my futon mattress, fell to the ground with a faint clanging noise that was music to my ears. <laughs> Though not in every instance, for the most part, finding is fun. It's so much fun that we make games out of it. Hide and seek, capture the flag, 
Where's Waldo? I spy with my little eye. Whether we are finding old classmates, a solution to a problem, a four-leaf clover, a new planet, inner peace, gold, or God, the discovery or recovery of those things we are seeking brings great joy. The more wildly improbable or surprising a find is, in those moments we may feel a sense of astonishment, amazement, wonder, awe. Though it is difficult to put these feelings into words, in her book, Lost and Found, Catherine Schultz tries. She likens the feeling of losing something or being lost to the feeling that the universe is dauntingly large and we are terrifyingly insignificant. And the feeling of finding something or being found to the feeling that the universe is dauntingly large and yet here we are, unimaginably unlikely and therefore precious beyond measure. It is the feeling of finding that gives us insight into the sheer joy that God feels and desires us to feel when we and any of God's children repent and return to God. All three parables Jesus told ends with an invitation. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Let us celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Amen.